Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components episode 35, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On today's episode, I am joined by the math punk himself, Tom Henderson. We talk about mathematics as control, how his students used game theory in the classroom, and finally, the performative methods of teaching mathematics. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's episode is the math punk himself, Tom Henderson. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Samuel. Oh, that's that's fantastic to hear. I've I've long listened to and followed the work that you did, so it's uh, or work that you do even. Uh, so it's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Hey, uh, now I I generally ask this of my guests and I, of course, will uh, ask it of you now. So what was it that, that really kind of brought you into the, the study of mathematics? What, what about math really intrigued you and decided to uh, d- let you decide to make it into a career for yourself? Well, my story starts with my birth. And uh, no, I'll go a little bit later <laughs> than that. Uh, let's see. I uh, I was I was good at math uh, as a kid, but it, it was basically just because I was good at following rules. Um, I follow orders great. So uh, I did algebra and geometry and and something called math analysis. I can't remember what that was. It was sort of trig. It was for the international baccalaureate program. And it was okay, but it was basically just I did okay because they told me to you know solve for x, and so I was like, okay, I can solve for x. I can do that. I can do this in full. And um, it didn't really strike me as a, a very interesting subject because it was all very meaningless, formal manipulations of stuff. So then years later, after I had discovered that I was not an electrical engineer, I was uh, spending a lot of time in the game store, actually. And spending all the time in the game store and playing EverQuest and Shadow Fist and Magic and all of these different card games, board games, computer games, whatever. And it suddenly occurred to me that Mathematics was a game in which uh, there were there were rules to be discovered and, and there were these formal interesting things. It was it, it was very game like, but it was actually for something instead of just being for for entertainment purposes. So up to that point, I had kept getting distracted from actually like you know doing stuff uh, because anything that I imagined picking uh, going into a science or whatever. It seemed like I would I would be missing out on so much other stuff, and I wouldn't get to learn about chemistry if I learned about literature or whatever. So mathematics was neat in that uh, it seemed like you could study the most things at once studying math, because if you study an exponential function, you're studying biology at the same time as you're studying finance, that kind of thing. So because it had this, uh, this, this unity where you could talk about a whole lot of things in the universe all at once if you knew the mathematics behind them, it seemed like a very efficient thing <laughs> to learn about. And uh, so my plan was go back to community college, uh, relearn calculus, and in doing so, relearn algebra. I'd, I'd been off math for about seven years at that point. And 
my plan was just keep taking math classes until I either had a job or my head melted. And I still don't have a job and my head hasn't melted, so I'm going to keep learning math, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in a way, uh, you, you do now have a job that you uh, got funding from a bunch of people like me in. I, and I kind of, <laughs> I kind of like to, to talk about that. When I, when I introduced you, I called you the math punk, and that's because you are now well-known on the internet as the math punk, thanks to uh, places like, say, Boing Boing and Technocult, as well as this wonderful Kickstarter uh, project that you got funded. So I was, I was wondering if, if we could talk a little bit about what this project is, what you are now, I believe, currently using your time to do? So now that I know a bunch of math, I, I, I finished a master's degree a couple years ago. Um, I know enough math that as I walk around looking at stuff, I use math like all the time. And I don't necessarily use math in the, in the sense of I write down equations for everything. It's more like, like those tools of mathematical thinking are, are so ingrained that I really enjoy trying to decide between two bus stops and kind of running a little bit of very hand-wavy probability on uh, what my likely wait time is going to be. You, know, you take a few assumptions, you know that they're, they're possibly pretty simple assumptions, and you think about how you should make the decision based on, on those assumptions, and then maybe you, you refine it when you figure out that they're not very good assumptions or they, they can't be close enough to the real world to, uh, to do you any good. So I use this kind of mathematical thinking all the time, even though I'm not necessarily writing down things that look like hard mathematics. So it occurred to me that there really, I, I, I would like it if there were a math book out there that got across some of that mathematical thinking in terms of looking at things in the world that frankly piss me off. And there, there sort of isn't one. Like so many math books are very much remo removed from the real world in a lot of ways. So uh, I'm writing this book called Folk Mathematics, which is basically, well, let me tell you sort of the axioms here, is that punk is very much about uh, giving an extended middle finger to authority, and mathematics is the science in which you don't need to observe data, you don't need to uh, head into the, the library so much. You can, in principle, verify all of the mathematical facts you want to use for yourself. All you need is a pencil and paper, not a super collider. So to me, that's, that's kind of punk as in that you can verify all of this stuff for yourself. And, and personally, I don't think you even know it until you've verified all these things for yourself. You can, you can manipulate equations all day according to formal rules, but you don't really know it until you've proven it for yourself. So it's a book that is about that sort of do-it-yourself, think-for-yourself aspect of mathematics and then applies to structures in the real world. And that's sort of the other, the other half of the punk equation in that when I think about punk, I think about uh, Jello the Opera, and I think about people who will look at things that are very screwed up in the world, and they won't necessarily provide a solution, but they will uh, argue in song or in humor or spoken word or what have you that things are very screwed up, and why don't you ask yourself why you're not doing anything about it? The conclusions you come up with, you know, fine. You know, if, if you react to the world is screwed up and I'm not doing anything about it, with a hedonistic nihilism, then that's cool, just so long as you thought about it. And so it's a book that tries to, to get it to get that kind of that kind of spirit yet about mathematics. You know, the sex will do game theory, like it'd be a very different world, I think. Oh, and there's also uh, there's also some online weird stuff associated with it. Um, as you mentioned, I have the six 
Kickstarter. It was successful. So really, uh, instead of having a regular day job, I have a thousand bosses. It's great. It's really <laughs> nice. So I'm providing some, uh, some video content for them starting, uh, I think, next week, where I'm going to put together uh, a little short videos explaining basically where my brain is on the process of writing. Uh, and that's going to just be private for, for the backers to show my appreciation. And then later on, uh, we're going to actually do some gaming. Uh, I'm very excited about some of the potential of, uh, this sounds like no fun at all, serious games. Games that have some kind of purpose to them, rather than just being about entertainment. So I'm working with a couple of game designers on trying to put together a punk mathematics game so that people who are just sort of vaguely interested in mathematics, they can, they can sort of find what's, what, where's the math in their own interests which I think math education right now is totally failing to do. We occasionally get, hey, math is cool, but it, it doesn't really uh, really talk to people's own interests, their own aspirations, their own interests, and uh, I'm going to try to you know, fix all that and then take over the world after that. That's, that's the plan, three-step plan. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there that I'd like to talk a little bit more about, but I'd like to, like to go back to just the idea of... Uh, punk mathematics is math as punk. I mean, I, I was a punker back uh, a few years ago. I haven't gone to a show or appeared to be one in, in quite a while, but I still listen to music in order to get pumped for today's interview. I was listening to some bad brains and I, I really, I like the idea, especially in the technocult interview. Uh, you mentioned a couple things about punk mathematics. One that you already mentioned that math is verifiable. So the authorities can't trick you. You can actually go through and, and find it all for yourself. The other thing that you mentioned was that math uh, can be used as a means of control. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you meant by that. Okay, sure. Well, um, I've lately been, uh, the math that I'm reading right now is Ashby's Introduction to Cybernetics. And I loved, I loved just love the word cybernetics as a kid. Um, at the time, I thought that cybernetics must be like the really cool razor implants that uh, <laughs> Molly has in Neuromancer. Uh, I was a little bit confused on what cybernetics actually was. Um, cybernetics is essentially it's a mathematical study of control. So looking at how feedback loops must operate, look at how a machine that, that moves from state to state operates, and how does it change if it has sort of uh, parameters on it. So basically, you've got a machine, and sometimes it's doing thing A, and sometimes it's doing thing B, and sometimes it's doing thing C, and maybe it's got a switch. So the switch tells it, go from A to B to C, or go from A to C to B. Um, and so there's this kind of relatively developed mathematical theory of how control works. So that's kind of fascinating from this just pure mathematics standpoint to me. The, the, the control in the more general sense is, uh, you know, a good example is uh, a lot of American congressional arguments as we've been sort of heading towards austerity measures, right? We ended up in the political sphere. There was this discussion about how, about ending heating assistance for uh, some of our poorest citizens. And we could talk about how much money that would save, but if you used, uh, if you thought about the exponents, right, so think about the length of the number rather than just the digits that are in it, you would come to notice that it, that this heating assistance cost about five days worth of the two wars we got going on, uh, three now. So I think that innumeracy really harms our ability to participate in policy in an intelligent way. 
um, people will make decisions, and by people, I mean talking about people in power. They can make decisions, and if we're enumerate, we don't really understand what the decision is to a certain extent. Um, and I really feel like the fact that to, to a lot of people, everyone that I talk to, a lot of people that I talk to, they think that math is just boring. They think that it is that arcane set of rules to be manipulated, like I thought that it was when I was a kid. And it's preventing people from understanding some of the very weird things that are happening in the world. There are all kinds of invisible structures out there that uh, control what we do. Um, just this morning, I, I handed someone a piece of plastic and signed my name, and he gave me goods and services, which is crazy. He didn't have to do that. He could have punched me in the face. He could have done all number of kinds of things. But there's this invisible structure that we've agreed upon uh, that means that when I hand him the plastic, it has several numbers on it. Uh, he runs it through a machine. I sign it. Then he will give me coffee, even though he's a perfect stranger. I think this is weird. And there's other imaginary structures out there that are really causing lots of damage uh, or they're causing very interesting things. I mean, you know, the, the Internet is a pretty interesting mathematical structure. Uh, it's this network, right? So it has, it has its own internal uh, structure that I think is interesting and fun to look at. But then there's also the, another invisible thing that controls us is uh, stock trading algorithms. There's a, a set of rules that a computer is following uh, that will affect in, in, in this enormous way what food prices might be. There's all this invisible stuff that is bossing us primates around. And if you don't know mathematics, you can't even see them, uh, which when you really think about it, is totally creepy. <laughs> I, I imagine mathematical structures around us as these uh, sort of invisible Lovecraftian monsters that are controlling us poor hapless primates because we uh, have been convinced that they're too boring to look at. Well, yeah, I, I think we've done a, a pretty good job uh, convincing them, uh, convincing everyone that, that it's boring. And that, that really is an issue within mathematics, at least mathematics education at uh, this point. Now, I, d I did something that might be construed as, as slightly mean in preparation for this interview. Cool. I went to rate my professor. Yes. <laughs> and... While there, there are plenty of people on that site that really did enjoy taking classes from you, I believe it was at Portland State, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so a lot of people uh, did quite enjoy taking classes from you, but there's also a, a significant portion of people who thought that your style of instruction was, uh, I believe, uh, disorganized, useless, didn't lecture at all, had us working in these idiotic little groups I believe those were all just ideas of things uh, that they said. Now, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you did lecture in mathematics, because I believe that was also the title of your position, what you were a lecturer. I was wondering if you could uh, explain a little bit about uh, what you did and also why you feel that, that these certain uh, group of students, for some odd reason, did not click with your personal style. I could totally see why they would not click with my personal style. And the reason for that is because when I was teaching at PSU, I was trying to figure out um, how to be the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. Um, I wanted really, really badly to try to get across to them that math learning mathematics is a struggle. You know, when I mentioned earlier that occasionally someone will go at this sort of math is cool route, I think they forget to point out that math is freaking hard. I am, I am with uh, the talking Barbie doll on this one. That class is hard, but it's, it's really hard to do. It's, uh, it's problem solving on things you can't even see. 
they are these abstract things. You know, your poor monkey brain can't see the damn things. So a lot of times my style would end up being a pretty short introduction to the concept, and then I would just throw them at the walls. So um, the students who wanted to be led step-by-step -step through things, they often did not do so well, uh, and they felt like they were having to teach themselves. So uh, I think that the criticisms are perfectly valid in that I often did avoid lecturing in favor of trying to maybe present them with a large number of relatively simple questions in sort of in increasing order of difficulty to try to bring them through to sort of bring them through the forest by coaxing them with the sound of my voice ahead of them rather than being right with them with a torch and, and stepping show them, showing them where the, the tree branches were to avoid tripping over. That's uh, that's probably why they didn't like my style. Also, I am pretty disorganized. I actually make for a really lousy administrator. I take way too long to grade things because what ends up happening is I'll be looking at, you know, 30 tests or whatever, and I'm looking over them and I'm going, oh, these, the mistakes they're making are very interesting. And then I want to start figuring out, you know, whether I should award an eighth of a point for this, <laughs> doing this correctly, and then subtract off one 32nd of a point for doing this other thing, and it takes me like 10 times as long as it really should. Because, and then what happens is I get distracted by my own brain because I'm looking at these tests and I'm starting to panic because it's 2 in the morning, and then I, it occurs to me that there's this function from the set of all possible learning experiences to the codomain of A, A minus, B plus, B, B minus, and there's this really large set over here that I'm supposed to collapse into this little tiny set over there, and it's kind of made up. I mean, I gave them a syllabus, but the syllabus is like, the uh, homework is 20% of what, you know, of it, <laughs> great. Um, and so I would get to thinking about the structural properties of this projection from a set of learning experiences to grades, uh, and that it was sort of meaningless, and yet also it was really important for their future career tracks or whatever. Uh, and now it's three in the morning, and like I don't even have a theorem written about the projection problem, and uh, everything was just always, always, always late. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of sucked. It's true. <laughs> well, that that's that's not what I that's not what I meant to bring <laughs> out. I, <laughs> I was just trying to look for your personal teaching philosophy because I, I'm interested in things like that. I was not trying to get you to uh, tell yeah, everyone well, that you're well, a terrible my teacher. My personal teaching philosophy, I think, is that curriculums are killing us. Because with a curriculum, you can't run off and take tangents. And so what would happen is on those occasions that I was lecturing and that I really had their attention and we were going somewhere cool... Like, they might ask a question that was relevant, and I'd say, oh, yeah, that takes us over here. We could totally look at this. And, like, this is pretty interesting. And then I would look at the clock and go, but now that you're interested, I have to go back to the material and just cut that interest right at the root. And it's, it's killing us, Samuel. Like, the, the, the way in which we have to get the students through a very specific set of material so that everyone knows the same stuff so that they can go on to the next class, like, it's, it's at cross-purposes with educating them in the sense of them, like, learning stuff. This external, uh, the extrinsic motivation of grades is really interfering with any intrinsic motivation that they would find to, to learn things. I actually completely agree with you there. At the university that, I, that I'm teaching at, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in the class I'm teaching, Math 132, Finite Mathematics, we have a standardized final that every single 
student who takes that class has to take. Or in other words, I have no flexibility in what I teach. Yes, I do get to write my own in-class exams. I get to assign my own homeworks and things like that. But I have to teach to this test. And that does literally keep me from exploring, say, down something really cool in probability and talking about the actual letters that were written back and forth between Pascal and Fermat that developed this, which is absolutely fascinating. The history of it is fascinating to me, and I don't get to teach it. And, and so I, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. Now I'm ranting on a show where I'm supposed to be interviewing you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you, 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 you kind of understand where I'm coming from, where, you know, I don't, I don't want to bring, uh, please permit me to bring probably inapplicable quantum metaphors in here, but when you start measuring things, that affects what the things are. And if you are teaching to a test, I think that this has a non-trivial effect on how the students are learning. Because my, I think that my students are geniuses. They use all sorts of game theory intuitively in order to maximize their grade while minimizing their learning. And from that standpoint, I cannot fault anything that my students do. I mean, they are clever, clever, clever people. They are trying to balance often a fairly large credit load. And what they do is they take... They, they take the, the description of the function from their learning activities to their grade, and they maximize it for their own benefit. Well, they, they, I guess they optimize it for their own benefit. You know, they'll, they'll say, okay, well, I really only need a B in this class to keep my grade point average where I want it to be, so I'm going to not go to class at this time, and it's okay if I don't learn this thing so that I can work on my statics homework or whatever. And I felt like a lot of my colleagues would not understand that they were doing this very complex, probably nonlinear optimization problem intuitively, and that our students were just fucking geniuses for not doing their homework. The, the extrinsic stuff that we've got going on in the university is just, it's, it's, it, is, it needs to be reinvented, I think. And like, there's wonderful people in the university, and the, the academy in principle of Having a bunch of people in the same physical location who are working on learning and researching is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we cannot lose. But, man, it's looking more and more like a calculus mill to me. And uh, I really, really hope that we fix this in the next, you know, three to five years, um, or I think it will be very bad. Uh, and I'm kind of hoping that some of the new structures of, of the Internet and figuring out uh, how how peer-to-peer stuff works. This is another thing that probably some of the students hate it, is I tried to put in a lot of peer-to-peer teaching because I figured uh, I already know the stuff, and so you know, I, I, can, I can do algebra when I'm really drunk uh, and not make any mistakes just because I've done it so, so much. Whereas students, they actually they have uh, misunderstandings, and so they can say to each other, oh, you're doing it like I did it last week, and I figured out that this was the thing I was misunderstanding. There's a very reasonable mistake to be made, and I don't make this mistake anymore because of this. So I tried to get a lot of the, the, the peers teaching each other, and that may not have been the best for some of the students. This is totally possible. But anyway, that's just a different structure than the one-to-many model. You know, um, your, your typical classroom is based on sort of the underlying concept of, thank God we found a person who knows something. Hot damn, we found a book. We're going to chain the book to the lectern, and that person is going to read to all of these students. It's very efficient in an information-scarce environment. When you're in an information-rich environment, it's really not a good, it's just not a good model fundamentally. 
in an information-rich environment where the students, you know, they don't have to even be physically present in order to maybe help each other with their homework here and there. Now it makes way more sense to look at it as a complete graph where every node is connected to every other node and you, you spread information that way. It's just structurally it's totally different. And I think that, that us who love research and teaching and learning and math, you know, because, of course, you and I, we don't think math is boring at all. Like, no. we love this stuff. And it does not have to be gussied up with <laughs> the, the worst possible version of mathematics, by the way, would basically just be, you know, why doing your homework is like the Ramon, and it would have skulls on it, and that would be it, right? <laughs> just, just prettying it up. You and I, we actually love looking at the, 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 the math books where they'll do, the, they'll do that dick move, right, where they'll say theorem, and then boom, obvious. Oh, fuck you! <laughs> obvious means, you know, obvious after two weeks of thinking really hard about it. I'm totally off track again. Um, yelling, swearing, uh, curriculum peer-to-peer. Oh, no, I lost it. No, okay, that that's fine. Uh, let's <laughs> ask me another question. <laughs> Well, uh, let's let's uh, move on move on to something else. You're just talking about how how we have in common that we do not find math boring, which I believe is entirely true. Another thing that we do have in common is that you have also uh, in the past. I don't know if it's ever going to start up again. Uh, done a podcast called Math for Primates. That's true. And I'm always a little bit interested because being a podcast nerd myself, I know how I got into it. What uh, convinced you and uh, your partner whose name was Tom, Nick Horton? Your name is Tom. His name is Nick Horton. Uh, wh- how did you guys uh, get into using uh, podcasting as, as a medium for teaching? Because your podcasts are much more educational-based podcasts than, than mine tend to be. Well... Basically, I think that it was it was that after the the sort of social media explosion, um, uh, which just reminded me of the Cambrian explosion. I wonder if there's speciation in, in media. Anyway, well, I was looking at what you can do with the internet, and you can broadcast, and that seems really cool. So I was getting more and more frustrated with teaching uh, because what I wanted to do is stand in front of people, rant, and then have them figure out like the hard stuff. And I wanted all of my classes to be twice as long as they were, and I wanted to be able to take every tangent that I could. And I just couldn't. So I, I came to Nick, who was the funniest mathematician who I knew, and said, you know, look, I think that we should do some, some we should do something. We should do like a podcast. And what we could do is we could just, just improvise. We just riff on different math topics, but we could shoot for the ones that seem really applicable to regular humans. Uh, both Nick and I, Nick and I actually, I think we may have met in game theory. Uh, and we took, I think each of us took maybe six terms of game theory. We took, we took the basic game theory, uh, and then we took something called quantum game theory, which was crazy weird and had Iconians in it, and it was, it was terrifying. So we were pretty interested in game theory, and, and he's, a big, uh, he's a big fan of biology, uh, and, and his interests in game theory are very much about the biological aspect, you know, why... Why are these lizards, why do these lizards have all these three different mating strategies and stuff like that? So, um, I don't know, it just seems like a fun thing to do, and he does music. Uh, Nick, Nick does all sorts of things. He is a very motivated and pretty awesome guy. So he, uh, he was doing a, a record a song a day project for a long time. And so I knew that he had some kind of recording equipment, and I said, yeah, we should just do this. We'll sit in your bedroom, we'll talk crap about mathematics, we'll, you know, do it every couple weeks. 
it'll be fun. And we got way more listeners than we expected. So we realized that maybe we should sort of up our game. And what we did next is we went to Keith Schreiner, uh, who is a musician here in Portland. And um, where's the where's that? But yeah, Keith Schreiner wanted to work with us. He listened to the podcast a couple times. And uh, he said, you know, I think this is really interesting. I think it's sort of you know, along the Radio Lab lines. And if you guys had some actual proper sound recording equipment and if you had some music going on, then we could make something really cool. So we recorded three shows with Keith. And so we got to be in his home studio and there were, there were headphones and there was squishy stuff on the walls. It was very exciting. And then Keith would do these really cool beats and remixes and, and just cut-ups of our weird math stuff. And so we would try to get across these you know, weird, crazy, paradoxical things, and then Keith would sort of interpret those as a soundscape. And it was really, really fun. And then Nick and I realized that if we were going to keep doing this, we were going to have to like actually do work. Because we picked off all the low-hanging fruit that we already knew about. <laughs> and so we were going to have to do like, serious, hardcore research to really try to up the intellectual content of the thing. And we're lazy people. So we kind of stopped right around the time that, that it was sort of all coming together because we were just realizing that we, if we wanted to make it like, if we wanted to keep the high quality, we were going to have to put in more hours than we really had, even though we had other projects going on. So I had my book that was just starting to formulate, and Nick has his own business that he's, uh, he's started. So we kind of just got successful at other things first before we could really give Master Primates the attention that it deserved. Um, we, we know that we want to do more recording and hang out and talk about math because we had such a good time and we received such a warm response from people who just, uh, they, they just, they really liked the show and it was fantastic. It's just that we couldn't really keep up the, uh, the standards that we wanted to hold ourselves to. So it, it, I'm sure that the primates will swing back but right now we we just kind of have too much other stuff going on, which is which is kind of sad. I miss, I miss it. I miss yelling at Nick and Nick yelling at me. Uh, so what one thing you mentioned in there is that that you found the the funniest mathematician uh, you knew, and that and uh, hilarity and humor is something I believe that would be important to you because you actually do do improv comedy as well. Uh, I was. I was wondering what about uh, improv comedy really kind of drew you in and, and where you see that that kind of intersects with your mathematics, with this book that you're writing, with your teaching. Sure. When I came to Portland, I moved, I just put all my possessions in my car. Well, you know, except for the possessions I left my parents' house, right? And which are which, where I was living at the time. And drove up to Portland. I knew one person who I had met via gaming uh, on the internet. And uh, here I was, and I knew no one, and I was trying this new thing, this, this whole trying mathematics thing, and I felt, I felt really good. I felt much better than I had in a long time. I had sort of gotten over depression by finally having some kind of purpose. But I'm, but I'm here in Portland, I don't know anyone. So I'm trying to figure out what I could do that I could maybe meet people, and I see this poster for the speech and debate club. And I say, oh, wow, that looks terrifying. I'll go do that. And so I took speech and debate, and I got, got pretty good at it, and my, my best events were doing leader of opposition in parliamentary debate. And that just meant someone would make an argument, you would find out what those arguments were, and then you would immediately, when they're done, have to stand up and rebut them, um, which I loved because I didn't really have preparation time to a certain extent. I just had to go. 
The other one was a thing called impromptu, where you are given two minutes to think about a five-minute speech. So they give you one or two or three topics, and you're supposed to take two minutes and come, come up with a speech. And I did very well in this. So I was asked into an improv comedy group. And so I went for it, and I love it, because you don't have time to prepare, right, because you're, you're in the scene. So you just have to go with whatever it is that your brain gives you. And what your brain gives you may not be funny or it may not make any sense. So then you have to work together to make that thing that your brain gave you make sense. It's, it's a very strange thing to try to describe, but it's that you have to sort of attain this very open uh, flow state in order to, to make it work. And you have to work within your own limitations. So I stutter when I get excited. And if I get on a stuttering bend in a scene, well, it's not a mistake because you're not preparing, you're doing things. So how do you incorporate some mistake or personality quirk or whatever that has just showed up? And it's just this crazy real-time decision-making game you just have to be completely present in order for it to work. And I, love, I just love it like crazy. It's so much fun. Because you can't, you can't make mistakes. You're not, you're, you, because all this stuff is not a mistake because you're performing. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that's why I'm like, just completely in love with it. I, I want to jump in with a, with a quick comedy nerd question. Uh, do you do long form or short form? We do both, actually. We, uh, we've done short form for, oh my God, like seven years now. And then this year we've been working on our long form, um, which is interesting because you things aren't funny quickly. You just have to let relationships develop. Like there are a lot of shows where the plots are sort of completely throwaway. It's, it's the relationships between the characters. And now that we're working on long form, the relationships are more and more important, whereas before it was sort of about the sort of stunt aspect of, of doing a guessing game or what have you. So we actually did our first long freeform game uh, a couple months ago, we did we improvised a medical drama, and that was totally great. That was really fun. So we, we do a little bit of both. Okay, now now you can get back to the to the mathy answer. I'm done with my comedy nerddom. Yeah, so the mathy part. Um, you know, you know this as a teacher, and anyone who's tried to explain a concept to maybe a fellow student, they're sort of they've sort of perceived it. Maybe there are many ways of understanding the mathematical concept. There's sort of verbal descriptions, and there's symbolic descriptions in an equation or what have you. Uh, there's diagrammatic explanations where you've got this picture. But there's also uh, what I think of as the performative way of learning mathematics or, or, or describing a mathematical concept. So I'll, I'll talk about it from the perspective of a teacher, but it's actually applicable to any student who sort of said, oh, I get it, let me show you. It's that you're, if you're a teacher, you're sort of standing at the board, and you lay out this thing that you want to discover. And then you sort of stare at it, and you go, oh, well, I wonder how we could find this. Oh, I know, an x-intercept is where y is equal to zero. And then you, like, wave your hand at the x-axis. Because, see, remember that this means all the places where y equals zero? So crossing this line is the same as having an x, a y value of zero. Oh, well, let's let y equal zero. Oh, well, now we've got an equation, and we can solve that. It's only got one variable in it. And once we've solved that, that we know where the x-intercepts are. So you kind of tell this little story about solving a mathematical problem, and it's very much a performative thing where you maybe ask a rhetorical question, or you 
feign confusion for a moment as you try to remember the definition of a thing. And there's this, you sort of, I mean, at, least, at least the way that I do it, and as we know, not everyone likes this, try <laughs> to perform through the confusion and the questions that you ask yourself and the fact that you forget things all the time. So I would, would often, and it's, I mean, it's the way that I do mathematics, so it's not purely, it's not a performance in the sense of pretending that I'm confused when I'm not. It's more like performing what my natural state of confusion would be if I was just being introduced to a concept. So that aspect, I think, really, uh, the, the improv training has really helped in that I get to, uh, I mean, I'm first of all very comfortable in front of students. Uh, that's that's the escape. And then sort of working in the moment, watching what their facial expressions are like, to try to decide whether I need to slow down and act more confused so that I can show them sort of by demonstration what it's like to hack through this confusion with a machete, or if everyone's just like on it, and so then I maybe get excited and, and try, to, try to do the sort of motivational aspect of, well, hey, we can solve this problem, and now we can solve any problem like this, and there's this whole generalization, and we're badasses, and that kind of thing. Well, uh, Tom Harris, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you finally. It is good to talk to you. I had a wonderful time. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave any feedback or perhaps suggest a guest to me, I always love to hear suggestions, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. And also make sure to head on over to acmescience.com where you can find links to all the work that Tom Henderson does on the web. And you can also keep track of the other shows that Acme Science puts out, such as Sam and Dan and, which will be releasing a new episode very soon about the 80s robot science fiction movie short circuit make sure you check it out it's a pretty good time the music on today's episode is by hard in firm the song is called pie from their album horses and grasses and the music i'm talking over right now happens to be from sp12 and you can find them over at opsound.org this is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike Licensed podcast. And I really don't have anything more to say about that today. So thank you all so much for listening. Tell all your friends. I'd love to get even more people listening to Strongly Connected Components, just like I hope you will with our next episode. <laughs>